So what's the big problem with wealth creation? How do people like us, who didn't inherit a boatload of money, who are investing and building wealth from our own blood, sweat and tears, how do we invest in a way that gives us remarkable results and become financially free before retirement age? I don't know about you, but I am sick of hearing from wealth gurus and experts who don't walk their own talk and prescribe strategies that are a one-size-fits-all approach. For self-made people like you and me, I'm here to tell you that you don't need to be superhuman or already wealthy to reach financial freedom earlier than 65. Hi guys, just a quick heads up that I'm changing up the format of the podcast for a few episodes. I've been getting so much inquiry from young adults who are deeply frustrated with a lot of aspects of wealth building in today's environment. So I have invited my good friend, Ken Huang, who is a millennial, to come join me to have some candid conversation about what's happening today and really kind of share lessons and uh, experiences that I've had along the way that I hope will be helpful to you. Please enjoy these wide ranging and uncensored conversations. Okay, another episode, another day. And the topic that we've got today is talking about mistakes, particularly mistakes on your way to building wealth and into the millions as well, excuse me. And, you know, I guess the, the word of blunders, you know, investment blunders is a strong word. But I think, you know, when I speak to successful people, regardless of whether or not it's wealth or investment um, or any form of success, that I think the common advice that I've received from people is that, you know, the idea of failing forward. And I think that adage is quite true also. So when it comes to wealth building, and I'm sure you yourself, Selena, has gone through your own blunders and mistakes and cuts and bruises along the way. So this is going to be an episode where we really talk about the value, I guess, of mistakes and why the facade of people who are like, you know, your proverbial successful people either shield and hide their mistakes, or they seem to have this perception that they can't make a mistake as well. And I think we can demystify that a little bit. So I guess before we get into it, very curious to hear your thoughts when it comes to mistakes, when it comes to wealth building. Yeah, look, everything you say is bang on there, Ken. I, I think it's really easy to look at someone who has been a successful investor and think that they must always get it right. And I speak to a lot of younger investors who have huge amounts of fear around, you know, making mistakes, getting it right, you know, avoiding loss at all costs. And I think it's a really uh, worthwhile podcast episode for us to just kind of pull this apart a little bit. I've had so many losses on my journey. Some have been minor cuts and bruises. Others have been absolute like gashes, like bullet wound type things. <laughs> but I think there's a lot of lessons in terms of how you react and what you make loss mean. You know, I would love to hear your perspective on what loss means to you and, and whether you've had any, because um, being a younger investor, I'm sure that some of your friends whom I know are very conservative and that can often create unknowing blind spots around what you think about when you invest and what money means. I think from a wealth building perspective and personally, and we've talked about this before, you know, in a previous life, I guess, around wealth building, my interest in stocks and index funds and stocks, as I know you've said before, is oftentimes quite speculative, right? And you very much so have little control over the performance of a company or how the market reacts to a company's performance as well. And so I'll give you an example. I invested in A2 Milk quite a few years ago. And this was during the craze of the Chinese buying up all the baby formula and A2 Milk was considered this sort of 
like top stock that people would buy into. And I think I sunk like several thousand dollars into it and, and it was doing quite well. What ended up happening was, you know, change of CEO. Um, I think there was some underperformance against market expectations. Chinese market started to sort of go belly up because they were no longer interested in the Australian market when it came to formula as well, or not nowhere near as they did before. You remember how there was that period where like you couldn't even go to Woolies and Coles and you couldn't even get formula. Like they either put limits on number of people could do it or these Chinese, what they call Daigo, these people would just buy it up and then resell it to the Chinese market. And so, you know, he was going, well, this is going to be great. It's going to be a rocket ship. It's going to keep going up. But because of those circumstances, I started to see things sort of go the other direction. And so, you know, you talk about the emotional aspect of this. How do you react? Is What sort of lessons do you glean from this? I personally have always been fairly cognizant of getting too emotional. And I think the adage of like, try not to catch falling knives is a, a quote that people tend to use in investing as well. And then sort of ride out that sort of thunderstorm and, and fortunately sort of recovered, you know, maybe not to the level as before, but recovered enough and I've been able to recoup. That's just sort of a story that on a personal experience on my side that I certainly didn't, it wasn't a bullet wound, wasn't like, you know, on uh, on death row. It did give me enough anxiety and stress to sort of think about the risks around it and the mistakes that you can possibly make around investing as well. That's basically all I had to share on my side about that. It's a good story, actually. And and just to be clear, whether an asset is speculative or not, you can have speculative real estate deal, uh, investments too. Uh, but I think the, the real story here is around how much we underestimate how normal it is to stuff it up. And then we overreact when we do, when we, we, you know, we search for deeper meaning and the emotional impact of loss is so overwhelming for some people that they beat themselves up and never try it again. As you become broader with your investing and deeper with your knowledge, you actually start to see that loss is, you know, even with the uber successful investors is just normal. And really it's about getting a small fraction of the things right rather than getting a hundred percent of things right. So mm. I think the truth of the matter is nobody makes good decisions all the time. There's a really good example, I think, of um, people saying, you know, like Mark Zuckerberg, when he had an offer from Yahoo and he turned it down, what a brilliant decision that was. And then there was another big entity that did accept the offer and everyone said, well, how dumb that was. There's so many circumstances around what makes a good or bad decision, but the point is it's only visible in hindsight. And, you know, as long as you understand that nobody makes good decisions all the time. And if you're an investor, what you're really striving for is for most of your decisions to be good and recognize that there are going to be things beyond your control, which mean that things do or don't work out. And the best example of that that is buying a piece of real estate right at the beginning of COVID was this absolutely brilliant decision. And people had this huge uplift in the value of the piece of real estate they held. And if you'd done that, if you bought at the peak and then interest rates shot up and maybe your house has declined in value, then you would say, well, that's a really dumb decision, but it's the same decision. It's just made at different points in time. So I think it's just, it's really normal for things to not work out. And so really the game is like, if we know that that's the case, how can we then tip the, the odds in our favor? How do we tip the scales in our favor? So that's the game I think we want to kind of unpack. Well, have you got any stories of your, you know, you talk about a lot of losses and failures and mistakes on your part, any story that sort of sticks out uh, from your experience investing? In my own journey, I mean, I've made so many mistakes. I mean, I've, I've been an avid share trader, futures trading, options trading. I've 
flipped real estate. I've done development. I've, I've done a whole lot of things and I've probably made mistakes in all of them. The mistake that probably hurt me the most and was the hardest to get over was one that I made um, around the start of my foray into developments. And it would have been in 2007. And basically we were looking for a site that we could develop and we made an inquiry on a site. At that point, you would find development sites in the newspaper. There was no online sort of search ability at that point. And um, when we contacted the guy who owned this particular property, he put us in touch with someone he said who'd be willing to finance it. It was a private lender. Anyway, we went down the, the path with him and we did all the right checks and balances. And ultimately, he ended up scamming us out of our entire life's savings that we'd put into Holy our, shit. How much yeah. are we talking about? Uh, it was about half a million bucks back half then. Half a million? Oh, my God. Yeah. So, it really? really hurt. It really hurt because, I mean, basically, we lost our house. So, we had um, – I'd bought my first home in 2001 and we had just finished paying it off. We'd worked really hard to pay it off. And then we lost it and it set us back financially years, but emotionally it was devastating. And, you know, I realized around that time I had a decision to make because what a lot of people would have done, I think, is just quietly retreated from all investing and just died in a ditch. You know, it really hurt. And I just decided to double down. And I knew intellectually, I knew I had to glean a lesson from it. But if I'm really honest, it probably took, you know, two or three years to get past choking on that loss. It was really hard. And there was a lot of fancy footwork. The guilt was incredible. It just was like, how could I put us into this situation? Did you feel personally responsible? I did. Yeah. And even though my beautiful husband said, look, we made that decision together. I knew that I'd been the the leader on that. But the truth of the matter is we'd had all the lawyers look at it. We'd done all the right things. We'd done the due diligence. There was just no accounting for illegal. Yeah, scammer. So yeah. So I think for me, and since that time, I've counseled so many couples on loss. And one of the things that intrigues me is it's never the amount. And when I say that, like, I mean, I lost this huge amount and it had this profound impact on me, but I've worked with dozens of couples who've lost a very small amount of money. Like they've lost $5,000 or $4,000 or $10,000. And it's basically caused a complete breakdown of the relationship and some relationships haven't survived it. So I think the lesson here is it's really important to digest the loss. And you you said it already, but to fall forward, which is recognize that it's not ideal and it hurts and it does set you back. I think there's a statistic that was put out by factretriever.com or someone like that on the American, the average American millionaire. And the statistic is something like, you know, the average millionaire goes bankrupt three and a half times. Really? Yeah. So So they just basically make money and then bankrupt three times, reset, do it again, reset, do it again. And so, you know, I'm saying that for context. I I just think it's making loss is normal. Mm -hmm. Losing the whole lot is probably less normal. You know, people are wiser about not, you know, swinging for the fences or trying to put it all on red. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the principle of, you know, fall forward and learn fast. 
Mm-hmm. If you can get your head around that, it's going to set you apart from people who would otherwise give up. So I think that's a really important one. And then I think the second key is like diversify your learning. It's about, and I think about my own journey, I had a lot of investing that worked out really well straight away, but I sort of saw the value in, okay, well, that's great. I know that strategy works, but let me try another let me try another. So I recognized very early on that there's great wisdom to be gleaned in investing in lots of different things in different ways and educating myself. For example, one of the things people don't understand about real estate investing is you need to master the world of how does finance and lending work because you can't be a great investor in real estate if you don't really understand the nuances of how does that work? What are they looking for? When you hit your limit, how can you move sideways? It's kind of like climbing out of a well is the best metaphor. You've kind of got to ratchet yourself up, you know, with four limbs, one brick at a time. And the way to do that is you've got to diversify your learning rather than just going, I just want to know about this particular strategy and I'm just going to rinse and repeat. That doesn't necessarily always help. And and sometimes you you learn things in, say, futures trading or, you know, whatever it is, share trading, that actually you can apply to ultimately the strategy that you learn and love and say, well, I'm just going to rinse and repeat that. You know, I think being able to integrate information across lots of different asset classes and styles is actually really important. Do you think, and because I, I naturally see myself as a conservative person, and I think about the word inaction like not actually taking any action, right? People are so out of fear or lack of urgency that there's a cost to inaction because you talk about failing forward and taking these. And we we think about these people who, you know, like the millionaires who bankrupt themselves three and a half times across their lifetime. These are people that probably for those who are conservative, see that as, oh my God, these guys are really extreme. I could never do that. But then for someone who goes, look, I'm just like the average Joe or Jane and I, I don't feel comfortable making these decisions. What do you say about that? Because I think inaction also has a cost, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, look, I'm I mean, there's a, an expression you would have heard that the enemy of a great life is a good life. And the same is true whether we're talking about money or just how you live your life, right? And what I would say is that um, it's very easy to think that the status quo is safer and is comfortable. But if you kind of look ahead, well, where will I be in 30 years time, 20 years time, however long you think you want to keep in active work? And where will I be? And will I be okay with that? That's when the, the pain around the decisions you make now will will be felt a little bit like health. You can, you know, ride the brownie points of youth and just being in good shape for quite a while. But at some point, not investing in exercise and diet and health starts to show up and it ends up affecting your longevity and the quality of, you know, your latter years. And so when it comes to money, it's exactly the same. It's like if you don't make those small investments now and get those minor scratches, relatively speaking, you're not going to actually grow. You're going to stay the same. And and the truth of the matter is that staying the same is actually a slow decline over a long period of time because Mm. the world moves forward, the world gets smarter, richer, all those things. So if you don't take risks, and there's a, I know this is sort of irrelevant, but there's a fantastic story I heard about dating. And, you know, a lot of people feel fear around rejection when they're initiating, you know, relationships with new people. Mm. And I I heard this uh, expression, which is that if you try, you you might fail. And if you don't try, you might fail. You know, you fail anywhere. So you might as well try. And something about that, hearing that when I was in my 20s, just kind of made me get over myself a little bit. And I think the same is true of wealth building. It's kind of like, if you give it a go, there's a chance that you will fail. 
or that you might make mistakes. But the upside is so much, you know, it's so much richer in terms of not just the money, but the experience that it's worth the effort. And so I, I would say to people who are, have fear around trying is feel the fear and do it anyway. Well, there's a guy called Howard Marks that you've got here, and I'm curious to know what the story is behind this guy. I haven't actually heard of his name. So can you give us a bit of context about who Howard Marks is and what the story is about? Yeah. So Howard Marks, for me, edifies the idea of someone who was really top of his game and then had this massive setback and was ridiculed publicly. So he was the co-founder of Oak Tree Capital Management, and it was really well known for buying these really high risk or perceived high risk distressed debt um, packages. And um, the strategy was they would buy the obligations of these big companies that were having financial difficulty and then turn them around and, and help them get back on track. It's not a strategy for the faint hearted at all. But in 2008, when the global financial crisis hit, at that point, he was managing billions of dollars and he had this reputation for getting this fantastic return for all of the people that invested with him. But then when 2008 hit, suddenly the bubble, the housing bubble burst and the banks were collapsing and the credit market just basically went to the dogs. And so the, the asset class that he was investing in became even more distressed. And overnight, people were just kind of going, my God, this guy's an idiot. Like, how could he have lost all this money? And he had a decision to face, which is... Is, you know, do I give up and shut up shop or do I kind of keep going? And uh, he wrote to his investors at the time a series of essays, if you like, a bit like what, you know, Herc Buffett. Buffett does. Basically, he he said no one is ever immune to market forces, not even the experts. And he made a counterintuitive move. And so, you know, he actually decided at that point he was going to buy more. So he already had a book of really badly performing debts. He decided I'm going to double down because you can't can't predict, you can prepare. That was the kind of the quote that came out of his essay. And so today, 15, 16 years later, he's now regarded as not just a financial success story, but he's talked about in terms of the power of resilience in the face of adversity because he, all the naysayers was like, you've stuffed up, you have made a huge mistake, you've copped all these big losses. And he was like, no, this stuff works, I'm going to double down. And so just having the resilience to get up, dust himself off. And he wrote these essays to try and explain to his investors what he was doing. Some people stuck with him. Some people ran. He is now known as the kind of the beacon of emotional resilience when it comes to investing. And I guess from a, to contextualize it from a performance standpoint, meaning since the GFC in 2008, how, is he doing better? Is he doing the same compared to before? How is he? He's gone into the stratosphere from the So significantly, you know, exponentially bigger than what it was before. Yep. Wow. Wow. There's, there's dozens of stories like that, but I just think he's one of the more well-known ones in investment circles. But I think that the truth of the matter is, and you know, I think about my loss relative to lots of people would have been huge, but for a lot of other people, it would have been a tiny loss. You know, you think about how many investors lose the lot and, you know, we share the stats 3.5 times. Imagine losing the lot and then going, oh, well, like I'll just start again. It's hard, but, you know, it's got to be done. Yeah, it actually uh, makes me nervous just thinking about it as well. You know, just the idea of potentially like you almost, if you are going to be playing this proverbial game that you're going to encounter mistakes and losses are going to happen as well, which probably brings to the fact that, you know, when we talk about Howard Marks and even yourself, the importance of my mindset and mindset mattering more than money as well and, and having that resilience around wealth building. So can you talk to that a little bit about what that means? I think resilience,
sense in terms of how you feel about your money is one thing. I think it's really hard, but learning to embrace those setbacks as learning opportunities. So really resilient people like, and, and I'm not talking about myself necessarily, but other people, when they have something that happens that's a financial failure, they look for the learning and then adapt the strategy that they, they're using. All of the setbacks that you have or any losses mentally, if you maintain the mindset of I'm playing the long game, it's really easy to just not worry about it. If you if you concentrate on just playing the short game and you're thinking about like, where does that affect me today? It, it's really easy to get sucked into the vortex of just, this is just diabolically awful. Um, whereas if you think, look, my ultimate goal is this, then you, you can kind of navigate where you're at now from a loss point of view. You know, in, in terms of managing your emotional response, I think pursuit of self-development. There's a um, there's a philosopher called Seneca and a, a bunch of others that were really into this concept of stoicism. And one of the things that a lot of people don't know about Seneca was that he was actually very wealthy. He was a politician and a statesman and, and a lot of people gave him flack for being wealthy. And one of the things that he allegedly did every month was he would sleep on his kitchen floor and drink from the bowl of his dog and and kind of have this experience of what is my absolute worst case scenario if I were to lose all my wealth. And, um, you know, I just thought it was a fabulous kind of tale of someone who, you know, he was given a lot of flack for being wealthy and people saying, well, you don't know what it's like to not have money. He used that exercise as a way of creating non-attachment to his wealth. Now, I'm not saying that we necessarily need to do that. But I think this idea of personal development and recognizing when we do have emotional responses to money so that we can do something about it, um, you know, that capacity to bounce back from losses is, it sounds funny, but you can only do that with practice. They're the sort of comments I would make. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else that you'd like to share about uh, the emotional impact of loss or just, you know, the mistakes being made on your journey to wealth building? I think the thing that I would say is not know so much that you should seek loss because that's not the right thing to do either. But just to really frame up, loss is just a natural part of growth and that, you know, we shouldn't fear it. Um, we should have a healthy respect for the risks that we take, but it's okay to lose. And we just want to focus more on getting it right more times than we get it wrong. Yeah, there we go. Thanks, Lena. Appreciate it. Yeah, that was great. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. You've been listening to the Alternative Investing Podcast. If you're feeling frustrated that despite doing everything right in the property investing playbook and you're no closer to financial freedom, then head on over to incosiwealth.com to learn more about how you can use alternative investments to catapult your investing income and blend strategies to shave decades off your timeline to financial freedom. See you on the next episode.